All right, let's focus on Iceland. That's an interesting example. With the help of Decode Genetics, this country's been able to test more than 10% of its population for coronavirus. In a new study, Decode found that roughly 0.8% of those tested showed strains of the virus. What's significant about it is that about half of those who actually tested positive said they were asymptomatic. Part of the epidemiology that we were conducting in Iceland was not only testing for the presence of virus, uh, but then ultimately looking at what we would call the host genetics or the genetics of the of people who got infected to see if there were predictors in genes that could tell us, for example, who was likely to have serious disease and who was likely to have mild disease. This is a critical clinical question right now. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Iceland is widely known as the land of fire, home to some of the world's most active volcanoes. The country is also known as the land of light and darkness, a place where long summer days with 24 hours of sunshine are offset by winter days with just a few hours of daylight. But it's now possible that Iceland may one day be known for something else, as being the country that helped unlock the mysteries of the COVID-19 pandemic. Decode, a subsidiary of U.S. biotech giant Amgen, has been studying the effects of the novel coronavirus on this homogenous genetic population. More than 15,000 Icelanders in this country of 360,000 immediately signed up for the study. And the preliminary findings published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine about how many are infected and how many of those are showing symptoms may shock you. Today's guest is Dr. David Rees, Amgen's Executive Vice President of Research and Development. Amgen is an independent biotech powerhouse with roots dating back to the 1980s and a biology-first approach committed to shedding new light on the molecular roots of disease. And the company is poised to make an important contribution to the COVID pandemic using breakthrough genetic research out of Iceland. And through a novel partnership with Adaptive Biotechnologies to scale up neutralizing antibodies that can offer protection from the novel coronavirus. Welcome to I Am Bio, David. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here today. So Amgen has a relationship with Decode, and the locus of that seems to be Iceland. Can you tell us about what Decode is and what's going on in Iceland, and, and what is Amgen doing with uh, in, in this regard? Yeah, thanks, Jim. Uh, Decode has done some very important work uh, related to the pandemic. Uh, I, I would point out that we not only have a relationship with Decode, but Decode is a wholly owned uh, subsidiary uh, of Amgen uh, and, in my view, uh, is one of the premier genetics groups in the world. Uh, they have made many uh, contributions to understanding the links between genetics and a variety of human diseases. Well, when it was clear that the epidemic was arri uh, arriving in Iceland, 
Kari Stephenson, uh, the head of DECODE, and I discussed assisting the Icelandic government uh, in their response to the virus. And in fact, uh, in hours, not days, uh, a website went up asking for volunteers from the uh, Icelandic population for a population screening study for the virus. Uh, within two hours, something like 15,000 Icelanders had volunteered, uh, showing a, a tremendous uh, outpouring of support for this work. Uh, and, and I have to simply acknowledge and tip my hat to the public spiritedness uh, and the great contributions to you know, public health globally uh, of the Icelandic population in this regard. So tell us a little bit ab about the history of DECODE. So DECODE was founded uh, in the mid or late 90s uh, and you know, with the goal of really doing human genetics on a population scale. And the Icelandic population uh, in many ways is ideal for this. Uh, as you may be aware, uh, they are derived from uh, a relatively small number of ancestors, so it is a relatively homogeneous population. There are dense family genealogies, uh, in many cases uh, family Bibles going back a thousand years uh, to roughly the time of the settlement uh, of the island, uh, and a great understanding of family relationships. All of these things actually make it an ideal place to do genetics, and the real goal here is to say, are there genes or variations in genes that associate with certain diseases, either higher risk for the disease or protection against the disease? Uh, and over the last two decades, Kari and the team, uh, again, have made fundamental discoveries linking genes to a wide variety of serious human diseases. So has a significant portion of the Icelandic population had a, a full genome sequencing? Certainly, I think a greater fraction than any population uh, on Earth. And in relation to coronavirus, that's important because one of the things that we are interested in doing as part of the epidemiology that we were conducting in Iceland was not only testing for the presence of virus, uh, but then ultimately looking at what we would call the host genetics or the genetics of, the of people who got infected to see if there were predictors in genes that could tell us, for example, who was likely to have serious disease and who was likely to have mild disease. This is a critical clinical question right now. Why do some people have an infection that's asymptomatic? They don't have any symptoms or it's very mild. Why do some have a very, very ser serious, perhaps even fatal infection? It may well be that there are genetic differences between people that actually in part determine that outcome. And one of the things we want to study going forward uh, is precisely that question. So you, you talked about the advantages that you have uh, as a scientist with a very homogenous population like this. Does it also, though, provide or impose limitations? Yeah, a couple observations in re uh, relation to that question, Jim, which is a very important one. 
Uh, first, I would point out that humans are much, much more alike than they are different. And therefore, many of the findings, in fact, uh, in Iceland probably will be able to gen be generalized to populations around the world. That said, whenever we make a discovery using the Icelandic population, one of the first things we do is try to replicate that finding in other more diverse populations to see if it actually holds up. And this is standard operating practice right now, uh, and it, it's just good science. So what have you learned so far from this work with DECODE in Iceland, uh, specifically about COVID? And how many people did you screen? Uh, we screened uh, a large number, uh, you know, we've screened, uh, you know, well over 15,000. Oh, okay. So you had 15,000 volunteers and you're able to screen basically every one of them who volunteered. What we have learned uh, was really two things. There were two parts to this project. It was done in collaboration with the National University Hospital, and they were testing very high-risk individuals. Uh, in other words, individuals, for example, who had symptoms consistent with the disease or had a very strong exposure history. Uh, and roughly 13% of those uh, were positive for the virus. In the broader population screening, where we took all comers, regardless of symptoms, and most, of course, had no symptoms, uh, it was roughly a half a percent or so uh, that were that were positive. What this tells you is that the virus is actually lurking in the community, uh, and others have since replicated that finding. It tells you that widespread testing and the ability to quickly ramp up testing will be an essential part of the public health response. You talked about the uh, amazing response of 15,000 plus Icelandic volunteers. I, I think it's also fair to say that there's been an amazing response from the industry. We've never seen, I don't think in our history, the, um, uh, the level of, of um, effort uh, and coordination and collaboration within the industry as we've seen with regard to COVID-19. Uh, how, how would you... Uh, describe that? Uh, you know, my observations have been that the spirit of collaboration and collegiality, I think, is really unprecedented, uh, not only between companies, uh, and I'm involved in a number of efforts with my peers, uh, you know, heads of R&D from around the industry, uh, for example, where we've come together uh, and said, look, this is an all-hands-on-deck moment. We need to share knowledge in real time we need to pool our efforts to meet the greatest public health challenge in a century. But industry is only one part. Uh, and one of the things that I think makes me quite hopeful about the future and potential new models that we may think about in the future uh, is what I would call a tripartite response, meaning industry, academia, and government collaborating to move forward in the fight against COVID-19. I think we've learned a lot about how quickly those sorts of collaborations can be established, how effective they can be. Uh, and this will give us, I think, a lot of food for thought uh, about perceived barriers to those sorts of collaborations that may in fact be barriers that are more mental 
than practical as we think about the post-COVID-19 world. And I think it's safe to say, as I've talked to so many companies and CEOs, scientists, uh, since this uh, virus struck us, that um, companies really are not putting first and foremost uh, commercial decisions. They're not saying, should we begin a, a research or development project here and let's first crunch the numbers and see if we can what the profit margins are going to be. Seems to me what the companies have essentially said is we've got, as you say, a once in a century issue here. We've got to get on it and uh, we may win, uh, may make money, we may break even, we may lose money, but the, the, that's not the driving factor. Would you? Is that fair to say? Uh, I think that's exactly the spirit uh, in which we've approached this pandemic. It is, uh, again, a once in a century challenge. Uh, I would view it even from a wider lens and say, this is part of the social contract that the industry has with the rest of society. You know, we're invested with enormous responsibility uh, for what we do. Uh, and this is the sort of situation that requires uh, an all hands on deck response uh, and a response that is really intended to be a public good uh, and for the public health. So the whole world is faced with the same sort of dilemma, which is uh, we want to be safe. Uh, we're waiting for a vaccine, but the economy is obviously worse than it's been since the Depression. No one really knows how long it's going to take for there to be a vaccine. I think on the most pessimistic side, you could say, well, sometimes it takes 10 and 12 years to make a vaccine, and there's no guarantee that we'll have one. So, um, But on the other hand, there's never been such a global effort at coming up with a vaccine, so I think that's on the positive side. But in the meantime, we're looking for bridge steps, whether they're therapeutics or whether they're antivirals. And so tell us about um, what Amgen is doing, and you're working, as I understand it, with adaptive biotechnologies to find neutralizing antibodies. Yeah, Jim. So as you mentioned, I think it's very important for us to develop therapeutics for the virus, uh, treatments that will be effective in treating the disease, COVID-19, uh, until such time as we have a vaccine or, in fact, we've achieved herd immunity. Uh, so we engaged in this uh, collaboration with adaptive biotechnology, adaptive therapeutics, to discover uh, what you've called neutralizing antibodies. Antibodies are the substances that key cells in your immune system secrete or give off uh, that are used to, uh, in part, attack infectious agents such as a coronavirus. We know by definition that there is an effective immune response against the virus because the large majority of patients who are infected will actually recover. Uh, that implies that their immune system has been engaged and is able to clear the virus. Now, what we don't have in the human population right now is pre-existing immunity to any great extent to this virus. And that, of course, is one of the things that makes it such a threat. Almost all of us are susceptible to the virus because we've never been exposed to it before. A neutralizing antibody is one that can bind to or attach to the virus and basically block it or take it out of action. And in the case of neutralizing antibodies directed against this coronavirus, we are interested in particular in developing antibodies that can bind to something called the spike protein 
on the virus. You may have seen pictures uh, of the virus and it's got these, it's studded with these little spikes. And those spikes are critical because that's the part of the virus that attaches to human cells, allows the virus to enter those cells and infect it. And so we're really looking for antibodies that can bind to or attach to that spike protein and block its ability to attach and infect human cells. We basically want to choke off the virus's ability to infect human cells. So when we see these drawn images, if you will, of the coronavirus, and they have these spikes, as you say, at least the way they are portrayed uh, is they seem to have dozens of these spikes. Do the antibodies have to be able to literally block every one of those spikes? Uh, in theory, yes, but we expect that the dose of an antibody that we will be administering should basically be able to completely coat those spike proteins and protect the intera uh, prevent the interactions. So you don't have to attack the spikes one at a time. You're attacking them all simultaneously. All at once. We want to blanket them. What are the challenges of getting that done? And how far along are you? In collaboration with Adaptive, we're taking uh, B cells, and B cells become the antibody factories in your immune system. We take the B cells from patients who have been infected with the coronavirus and have recovered. So by definition, we know that they have somewhere in there antibodies that are effective at neutralizing the virus. The key is to find them. And so using Adaptive's great expertise in immune profiling or understanding all of the characteristics of the immune response to the virus and using our understanding of those characteristics to pull out and identify the B cells that are in fact generating neutralizing antibodies. Do I have this right, that not all antibodies are created equal, that there are some antibodies that are far more effective than others and that you're actually looking in some instances for the sort of super antibody that's most effective? That's exactly right, Jim. When you are infected with something like the coronavirus, your immune system uh, will generate B cells that produce, you know, uh, it, it may be in the hundreds of thousands or millions of B cells that generate antibodies against that virus. But some will be much more effective than others. And so the key here is picking out that super antibody, as you called it. What might you think, what do you think might be the time frame for getting, uh, finding out whether what you, you and Adaptive are doing here is actually going to work? Well, we are already underway uh, in the laboratory. We're screening large numbers of B cells, uh, literally millions and millions of B cells. And uh, while I don't want to speculate on the time frame, our goal uh, is to try to have this work take months, you know, not years, of course, uh, until we have uh, a, a super antibody candidate uh, that we would be ready to introduce into the clinic. Is it the case that when a vaccine comes along that we will no longer need this uh, therapy, or do you see it as a therapy that will need to be available as the, as the virus uh, recurs and as the, as the virus mutates? I, I would say, first of all, Jim, we, we need these sorts of approaches as an insurance policy. We need effective therapeutics until a vaccine arrives. We certainly will need effective therapeutics 
if it's some time until a vaccine arrives or if a vaccine does not arrive at all. In addition, uh, it is possible that uh, vaccines may not pr uh, provide lifelong uh, immunity. Uh, and so one could have instances where immunity wanes, individuals get infected, and a therapeutic uh, is required. So there are a number of scenarios where we could need this type of treatment for some time to come. Now, Amgen brings a great strength in immunotherapy, but talk about more broadly what uh, Amgen's involved in on the, in the whole area of immunotherapy. We have a, a rich legacy uh, in immunology, uh, Jim, and our, our interests range across areas. We have uh, one of our key areas of strategic focus is inflammation, uh, autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis uh, and lupus. And so we have uh, a variety of marketed products and a large pipeline of products, really next generation molecules designed to attack or dampen an inappropriate immune response that occurs in diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis. On the other hand, as you're aware, the area of what we call immuno-oncology or harnessing the immune system to attack cancer has exploded in the last six or eight years. Uh, and Amgen has deep interests uh, and expertise in this area. In particular, I'd call out uh, one particular platform called bispecific T-cell engaging antibodies. These are complex engineered molecules that you can think of as having two hands. One hand reaches out and grabs onto a tumor cell. The other hand reaches out, grabs onto a T cell, a potent cell in the immune system. It brings those two together. That leads to the activation of the T cell, which then can kill the tumor cell. One of the fundamental questions we can ask is why do humans get cancer? Why does the immune system not recognize cancer cells and eliminate them? Uh, and in fact, part of the answer is that cancer cells evolve a host of mechanisms to allow them to basically fly off the radar of the immune system. And a molecule such as a bite molecule is meant to bring that tumor cell back on the radar so it can be identified and then eliminated by the immune system. So let's talk about what it means for cancer to evolve. Because when we think of human evolution, we think of it in terms of the reproductive system, that characteristics that cause a, a living organism to have a greater likelihood of survival, um, they're the ones that in fact survive and then pass their genetics. But cancer is not like that. So how do we apply the, the, the science of evolution to what we're seeing happening in cancer cells in the human body? Cancer in many ways is simply a speeded up evolutionary process. If you think about evolution at a large level, what is it? It is, as we always say, survival of the fittest. Well, in the case of cancer, how do the fittest cancer cells survive? Again, they evolve ways to proliferate, to divide, 
copy themselves more rapidly. They evolve ways to evade the immune system. And the cancer cells that are picking up those characteristics, typically through mutations in their DNA, are the ones that are more likely to survive in the body, go on and grow and become a challenge for the patient. So in, in effect, it is a speeded up evolution. And what we're trying to do is counter that. And, and what drives the mutation within those cancer cells? You know, we, we think, in, again, going back to sort of the more commonly used evolutionary uh, talk, um, we talk about mutations being uh, uh, created by uh, radioactivity coming from in, into the earth. What drives the evolution in the cancer cells? Is it just the randomness of their reproduction of the cells? Part of it is random. Uh, that may be in part how you know a number of cancer cells start through the collection of random mutations. They can start through exposures from known carcinogens, cancer-causing agents. You mentioned radiation. Smoking uh, would be the largest uh, single risk factor in that, uh, from that perspective, from a public health basis. Once cancer cells start, they also tend to develop instabilities in their DNA and instabilities in the various mechanisms that our cells have to keep DNA from becoming mutated and from actually repairing mutations when they occur. Of course, our cells have a very, very strong reason to maintain the integrity of their DNA and all of the processes inside the cell that go into maintaining that integrity sometimes break down in the cancer cell, uh, and therefore it can't maintain the integrity of that DNA. And that DNA is therefore much more prone to mutations. These then collect over time in the cancer cell. That's fascinating. We, we, we started by talking about the dilemma that we're trying to develop therapies and vaccines as quickly as possible. Uh, and at the same time, we have this huge pressure driven by the fact that 40 million people are out of work and, and businesses are going are, are closing. Uh, and of course, we now we see all this tremendous pressure to uh, reopen the states and we see terrible instances of people congregating without wearing masks and without social distancing and so forth. What is your thinking about what we might be getting into here? Because there's uh, the great unknown, of course, is whether even as we flatten curves in places like New York and New Jersey and, and my state of Pennsylvania, um, we're seeing increases in other states, and some of that may be due to increased testing. Some of it may be uh, because of community um, uh, infection. Um, are you significantly concerned that we're going to see a second wave? Because 100 years ago in the Spanish flu, it was the second wave that far uh, was far larger than the first wave. Uh, that's correct, Jim. And, uh, you know, perhaps we should start by saying, you know, if there is a second wave and or third and fourth wave, uh, as the case might be, um, the first wave never completely goes away. And you reference the, the influenza from uh, 1918, actually uh, incorrectly called Spanish influenza, uh, simply because Spain more accurately reported on what they were experiencing, uh, although th this was uh, a global pandemic. Uh, that was 
it really started to spread in the spring of 1918, swept through various parts of the world. And then as influenzas or uh, viruses are prone to do, fell to much lower levels over the summer, uh, the so-called seasonality. Now, it didn't disappear. Uh, and in fact, it was as early as late August in 1918 that outbreaks occurred in Boston, Cape Town, and then ultimately in many parts uh, around the world. And of course, the global pandemic was fueled in part by soldiers returning home uh, to all parts of the globe from World War I after the armistice. The lesson for us in that historical event is that these viruses won't go away until we have a vaccine or herd immunity and that as long as we have large numbers of unexposed and potentially susceptible individuals, and that includes the vast majority of people on Earth right now. It's probably 85% or something like that, don't you think? Uh, I, I would say at least it could be could still be in excess of 90%. You know, we, mm -hmm. we may only have, you know, 5 or 6% of people on Earth uh, infected at this point. Uh, so, so the vast majority of us are at risk and the appropriate physical distancing, uh, the appropriate public health measures uh, are going to have to be in place uh, as we move forward. Well, listen, what you are doing as a scientist, what Amgen is doing, what uh, your partner Adaptive and your subsidiary Decode are doing are not only fascinating, but um, never so much uh, are they uh, essential to uh, really the ability of millions of people to survive and for economies to rebuild uh, and to return life to some sort of normal semblance. And um, so we thank you um, for what you're doing. We wish you well. We'll be watching your progress. And, uh, and thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks so much, Jim. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Biopod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of heroes in lab coats, please visit imbio.org. On our next episode, we're going to kick off the Bio Digital 2020, a virtual global convention, with a special episode featuring a man who is no stranger to overseeing a crisis. Richard Hatchett is a former emergency room physician who was in charge of the main triage facility near Ground Zero during the attacks of 9-11. Since then, he has led up medical countermeasure programs in the White Houses of President George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And now he's the CEO of CEPI, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, a major global nonprofit working to speed a COVID vaccine to market by next year. They have nine shots on goal currently in development and are looking for more. Learn all about it on Monday's episode of I Am Bio.